Hello, and welcome to Quality Time with Rick and Rod, the show that talks about technology and more. I am uh, Rick Beaupre, and I'm joined by uh, Rob DeLeon. Hey, everybody. So today we're going to talk about security and identity and IoT and SD-WAN with uh, our special guest, Matt Albrook. You've known Matt for a long time, Rob. You want to give a little background on uh, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. I have had the the pleasure of knowing uh, our guest for a long time. He's uh, very sassy. Sorry, I only made it about a minute in before I could I could say it. Um, but uh, Matt is our security architect here at Aqueduct. I've been lucky enough to know him through a large swath of of his career here uh, at Aqueduct, and you know certainly I think Matt has become one of the leaders in the industry. I see him chipping in in kind of cross industry events, cross industry collaboration type meeting rooms, and things like that, where he chips in and, and gives his opinion on all things security from ICE the network access control position and as well as through some of the firewalls and and obviously some of the topics we're going to talk about here today from uh, sassy and ransomware and, and everything else so i think we're we're very lucky and fortunate and blessed to have matt here at aqueduct and even more so blessed that he's been willing to give us some of his time for for this podcast yeah i'm excited and i'm always amazed when i see him doing his things online and i'm like where does he have the time to do that? But anyways, let's uh, welcome Matt. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for that intro. I try to live up to it. Thanks for having me on. Matt's humble, but I see him get like a new certification every other day. Rick, I don't know if you noticed that. He posts on his LinkedIn, hey, check out this new certification I got. And it feels like he gets 10 to every half I get. Yeah, the one that's amazed me right now is the 100 days to code, Matt. I'm not sure how you even squeeze that in. I've been playing with the Python and some of that stuff, uh, you know, for the last couple of months. And uh, just you're always amazing. Uh, I love what you do there. Yeah, that one's that one's fun. That's been a um, it's been a little slow start. I've had some other stuff going on, but I figure that one's a really good um, a really good compliment to the uh the devnet stuff and the other just you know automation and all that kind of stuff in general um so it seemed like a, a good path to go down yeah i want to jump into that real quick because you know one of the things we're going to talk a little bit more about about sassy and you know the secure access service edge but the big thing for that that drives it is the automation right so i think we're as you know security practitioners or network practitioners we're migrating into the devnet world whether we like it or not right there's going to be you know, automation is going to be a base knowledge yeah. that we need to have. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely the emerging thing. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's come a long way from, uh, the automation of copying and pasting interface configurations from notepad into my CLI, right. That obviously doesn't scale. And when you're talking about things like, um, SD-WAN or really like the SASE approach in general, right. Where you're combining all these different components to, um, look at everything holistically and realize, well, I don't have a centralized edge anymore. So that model doesn't really work. I have to distribute my enforcement out, um, you know, combining all of the different security platforms you have and being able to automate and crosstalk in between them, sort of like that SOAR concept, right? Versus the SIEM, you know, you're talking SIEM is just reporting and visibility. SOAR generally as an idea takes that visibility and then makes it actionable and then actually performs those actions typically. And that that automation of the orchestration layer is definitely key in um, 
you know, in today's networks and is absolutely the path going forward. I remember a few years ago, we, the term stitching together came out and I would admit I'm one of the big ones that had a big sigh. I was like, oh, stitching together. This is not going to be good because as security, you know, you start creating air gaps, but we see that it's actually working with the automation and the DevNet, right? And the no code or the low codes where we're starting to get SD-WAN firewalls, IPS appliances, and, you know, other solutions, you know, into this, uh, it was, you know, we're like mini mesh kind of um, thing, right? So uh, believe it or not, it knocks down on the complexity. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think the adoption of everything, you know, there's this sort of approach now where where we're looking at like software and application development for these sorts of products and looking at it and saying, okay, let's instead of building, stitching it together, as you said, right, we take all these things and we kind of plug them in with some proprietary backend thing. No, let's start from the top down and everything is based on or largely based on open services and open standards, right? Everything is talking on similar APIs. Everything can understand Yang and, and JSON and YAML and Python and be, you know, Ansible and work with these different things, you know, NetConf, et cetera, um, that are standardized so that when you, when it comes time to build integrations for these products, the tools are already there and the options for you are you know, almost limitless, right? It's, it's really, it's based kind of on your own creativity and what you're able to do with the information that you have available to you. So it really makes that integration, that, that approach um, of doing things based on kind of an open adoption methodology instead of, again, that stitch, keep everything under one umbrella and stitch it together and put a nice GUI on top of it or something. It's, uh, it's been a nice swing to that kind of open, you know, RFC-based implementation of this whole concept. Yeah, Matt, and I, I think, you know, speaking of stitching together and cloud native, I know we're, we're touching on on SASE, um, you know, security as a practitioner, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on it, but I think it's really been driven by a, a lot of this drive for applications to live basically and be accessible from anywhere. Um, so not only are our remote users in different places, but all of our applications have gone to the cloud. Um, and, you know, as applications are developed uh, in the cloud native model, uh, so too does security have to follow it. So, you know, it's not enough to just have a data center with some applications in it and have a, a VPN, you know, backhauling through uh, headquarters to it. Uh, you know, now that applications kind of live everywhere and need to be accessible by everywhere, you know, security has to kind of go cloud native uh, as well. You know, Rick tries to steal my sayings all the time and I'm going to call him out on it. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of under the mantra now that security is is no longer best of breed, right? Uh, we're, we're not looking at putting together 50 different manufacturers and 50 different point products as far as security is concerned. We're really looking at, you know, the two aspects, really simplifying the network side and, and simplifying uh, the security side and really looking more at like a best of platform or best of security story that we can tell. Um, now, I don't know what your advice to somebody who might be going down the sassy architecture. Um, what are some, some good first steps that somebody who's interested in SASE might want to take? 
Sure. Um, so, I mean, there's, you know, there's a wide variety of approaches you can take, but I think you have to, you, you have to come up with your business use cases first, right? What, what is it that you're even trying to accomplish? So you, you mentioning best of breed is almost not really even the path anymore. Um, touches on a really good point. We don't have a network and a security solution because we want to have a network and security solution, right? It's not like me putting a bunch of nice LEDs inside my computer case. So it looks really cool. And I can say, Hey, I've got it. It's cool. The whole point of that network and security solution is to facilitate your users to be able to do their job and the business to be able to run safely and securely and efficiently. Right. And with obviously with a degree of stability and uptime requirements. So when you're looking at how do you begin moving down the path of SaaS, you have to, it's, it's almost helpful to think about where did it come from? Um, I mean, in my mind, SASE is sort of that logical next step. It's, it's the pivot from where BYOD was going to take us, right? BYOD 10 years ago was going to be to some degree, this big massive shift and we're not going to buy laptops for our users anymore. We're going to give them a stipend when we hire them and they're going to buy their own thing and we're just going to support it. And then all of a sudden SAS happened and now needing to support whoever accessing whatever on your corporate land securely stopped mattering as much in that sense, because the corporate land was not really the container for your applications and services, right? There's not a whole lot of sense in putting in a huge amount of effort to support, you know, any number of endpoints on the corporate land when they're just going to use the corporate land to go up to the cloud and access all of that data encrypted in the cloud anyway. And that's where all of your lateral movement and everything else that you're concerned about is happening is up in the cloud. So I think the first, you know, step is, is recognizing that sort of path and the ev- evolution of BYOD into something like SASE and then saying, okay, well, what is it that I'm actually trying to accomplish with this? Where do I start? Right. We need to be thinking about the, devices themselves, the the endpoints and the data that are on those endpoints and where that data lives, where is it while it's in rest, where is it in flight, is it protected? And um, it comes down to, you know, that data visibility and identity management. So those are usually a couple of the places where people tend to start, right? Gaining good contextual insight on somebody's uh, username and their identity and their device, and then gaining additional insight on the kinds of traffic that those users are sending and the kinds of uh, data that they're leveraging and where they're putting it and how it's moving around. So starting off looking at solutions that give that kind of visibility is generally the you know a good way to start down that that path of of SASE adoption. Yeah, I think now we're seeing SASE or just the industry as a whole. Um, come to identity-driven or role-based um, access. So we see it more of, you know, things are driven by apply, you know, applying different risk-driven security controls or looking at specific um, applications and where they are and who needs to get that. I think having the cloud edge has really opened up a whole new paradigm shift for us, like where we can apply that. I think when it was on-prem, um, it was harder for us to segment. It was harder for us to limit people to you know, different segmentations. And now I think with the cloud edge and SASE, that's really helping us do that. You know, a good example is remote worker. You know, not only they don't have to come back to a specific firewall, now they can just you know, get into the cloud and then be routed right to specifically to the application they need 
And, you know, I think it makes a better user experience. You know, and that brings up another point. One of the things that, you know, I've been seeing a lot lately is businesses from a use case perspective are looking at the end user experience. When have we ever seen that, right? We've always seen, you know, I need to make this application available. I need to make this here. I need to have that security here. Uh, but now businesses are saying, you know, how do I make it easier for my users to get this information that they need and that we can move at the the velocity that the business that, you know, is moving in. We always hear this term now, digital transformation, and I laugh at it because it's such a marketing term. And it's like, well, what does that mean? I think for us, you know, it, that just means that these users have to have their data anywhere that they need it. And, and it has to be secure. Yeah, Rick, and I, I think just just to add to that, I think what I feel the you know momentum of the industry has gone is IT's kind of come out of the shadows somewhat into being you know a business driver, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of these trends. And you know, Matt mentioned it from a security standpoint, but I think it's really any application, any technology, uh, you know, businesses are no longer looking at a call center as, you know, a bunch of phones that I have to staff with a bunch of people to make or receive phone calls. They're looking at them as, you know, functions of the the sales mechanism or functions of customer service. And I think, you know, we're looking at the applications and, and how they interact with the end user. For me, I, I really don't care if you have an on-prem Outlook server, or if you have O365, I just want to open my email. So I think, you know, the the trend in general has really uh, kind of pushed IT from being something that delivers those applications to being a driver of business outcomes. So uh, I think, you know, that's been great for, for our industry, um, but it, it's been a big swing uh, over the past couple of years. Yeah, it's definitely a swing and a move from, you know, View from you know from an opex standpoint, viewing IT as a cost center to viewing IT as a core tenant of your profit centers of the business, right? And seeing the value that it can provide there when you have this insight and visibility. And to your point about decentralization, I mean that's that's really where SASE comes in and what it's all about, right? Because you can't have centralized enforcement points are just weak points in the network. Those are your choke points, right? And I know and nothing. I don't know that anything in recent history has proved the need for decentralized enforcement and a distributed security edge more than this recent scenario with the pandemic. And everybody all of a sudden overnight had to begin working from home. And now my corporate firewall is sitting there doing nothing, <laughs> filtering <laughs> Windows updates for my servers, right? While all my users are doing whatever at home because we didn't have any kind of sassy strategy in place. I don't have insight to decrypt that traffic or look at DNS or like robust endpoint protection with any kind of integration with other services. And that puts you at a, you know, at a disadvantage in those kind of scenarios. Um, and the whole, you know, that's kind of the whole idea with SASE though, is you get that centralized, centralized management and visibility of your network security solutions, but distributed enforcement that, you know, the enforcement is happening as far down to the endpoints as it can. And it's also, you know, um, ideally orchestrated between them. Yeah, I would say the one thing the pandemic has done for us um, is this helped us roll out the SASE platform a lot quicker. I think, you know, if we look at things in the past, you know, you mentioned BYD earlier, rather than even go as far way back as IPv6, you know, we need to do this, we need to do this. And all of a sudden it's like, it's too hard, we're not going to do this. Well, with SASE being, you know, this 
shift in platform where you have network as a service and security as a service coming together. Um, you know, gluing those two things together was an easy marriage. And I think people are adopting it, uh, you know, very nicely. And I think from us as practitioners, you know, um, it's really laying the foundation. Now, I will add, um, you know, some people think that SASE uh, is the cure-all for things, security and all that. And, and I always caution them that it is a foundation. You know, you need to think about your security layers. Um, you know, do you want to do a zero trust? You know, do you need firewalls as a service? Do you want to do remote browser isolation or RBI, right? Those are things that conversations that need to have or from a connect perspective on the network side, you know, is SD-WAN make, you know, a case for you or is it just a standard DIA? So where I think it's a, a great technology, I think we also have to, you know, caution folks to make sure that they know it's not a silver bullet. Yeah, we, the, the, um, the buzzword train definitely does need to be kind of we need to make sure it's on the track that it's on and it doesn't start jumping cars on other tracks, right? To your point, it is not the, oh, I just do sassy. Because first, you know, first of all, that's not a thing, right? It's a whole, it's a whole architecture <laughs> involving, you know, you know, potentially multiple different products that you're, um, that you're putting together. And um, A and B, like you said, there's no, there is no single silver bullet solution to security. It's always, it's always a layered approach. I mean, look at the SolarWinds attack we had earlier this year, a supply chain attack. These are, this is a trusted update that is pulled down from a signed, you know, uh, code signing certificate, all that, everything's valid. And you look what happened. And I mean, the, you know, the move, I'm sure it's only a matter of time. I mean, that, that's kind of a targeted supply chain attack, right? On SolarWinds servers that are running in people's um, server rooms. I'm sure it's only a matter of time, though, before you begin to see more distributed supply chain attacks that are attacking, you know, all of your users. Now I don't have two compromised servers in my data center. I have 2,000 compromised endpoints that are all doing, you know, whatever. So really having this, um, that visibility and and tying all these things together, but understanding that, like you said, there is no one size fits all and there's always layers to these solutions, um, you know, becomes super important. And on the flip side of that too, I think there's, it's an interesting coin when you look at both sides of the idea of SASE, right? Because the approach often with endpoint security and visibility and all that is, 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 generally comes to, I want to make sure my users are not misbehaving. I want to make sure my users are not phishing, you know, getting fished rather, you know, accidentally downloading malicious stuff. I want to make sure my users are not um, willingly exfiltrating data. But on the flip side of that, there's also protecting the users and using this as a way to help your users and take care of them from the perspective of their own um, personally identifiable information, right? Not only protecting your company's IP, but looking at how do I protect my users from scenarios like um, like the new encrypted DNS, like Quick and DOH and things like that that are out there, where users may not even know that they're all of a sudden they're feeding all of their DNS requests up to cloud providers that, you know, maybe don't have the user's best intent in mind, right? Or um, the new stuff with um, third-party cookies being removed from Google in favor of cohorts, which is potentially even more data gathering than was being done before. So having the ability to help control those things with elements of your SASE solution as well is a benefit, not only for the company, but it ends up benefiting the user and their own um, kind of personal privacy as, as well. If you, you know, kind of swing it that way, I think it's important to recognize, you know, that there's multiple sides to the, uh, to the coin there. Yeah. Talking about ransomware and, and all of that for a second, um, even in this, you know, I attend threat hunting workshops a lot. And one of the ones that we talked about, 
at our last threat hunting get together was um, the purple fox malware. And what was interesting about that is, you know, it's been around since 2018, you know, initially tacked SMB on Windows, but there's these craftsmen that are taking that and rebuilding it into new ways and, and just, you know, getting excited about how it can, you know, uh, uh, come out. And we as practitioners have to respond to that. And, you know, when they you're taking old and new and, and, and trying to mix those together, um, yeah, it becomes a challenge. And that kind of leads me to, you know, the zero trust. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Um, I think it gets uh, misnomered a lot. Um, to me, I think it's always keep the honest people honest and keep the bad guys out. I think the endpoint is the most vulnerable part of our network. You know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I think by having the zero trust methodology and going down into that, you know, having those users always on, you know, I hate to use the term VPN, but, you know, always connected to the, your your um, cloud instance is very important. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, ZT obviously is a, as a prime tenant of SASE, right? Um, it goes back to one of the oldest rules in the book when you go back to the you know Unix days and things like that, the principle of least privilege, right? With great power comes great responsibility. So keep the power as low as possibly required, <laughs> right? Such that the users only are able to do what they need to be able to do. And that's a, that's a big part of ZTA is sort of the next evolution on that concept of uh, making sure that we, you know, Trust but verify, right, is to, to kind of spin the way you put it. We want to make sure that we have access to what we need, not access to what we don't need, and that we have kind of this persistent um, knowledge of, of context around trust and risk and everything with the endpoints and the users that are involved in this um, authentication and, and data access flow and things like that. It, because when it comes back to ransomware, like you mentioned, I mean, the first thing, I mean, that can, that can be a mess, quickly right i mean ransom with ransomware it's basically all about um identification and uh, isolation of the endpoints that are infected uh, as soon as possible because as soon as soon as you can do that that's when you're actually in some kind of a position of power but if you don't detect the attack and you don't realize the lateral movement and all these other problems that come along with that um i mean you can be you know in a bad situation really quick so having zero trust scenarios and having the ability to DEFCON out and quarantine these systems that look like they may be infected or something quickly. And more importantly, identify that as a problem. Um, you know, it all goes hand in hand. And I think, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the end users being a large, um, you know, risk factor here. And I, I think zero trust goes to, you know, help with uh, remediating some of that. I, I saw a report, I think it was like the, the Google security, um, uh, a report that that they had come out with, and the number of sites from a malware perspective to the number of sites in a phishing perspective, uh, the phishing outnumbered the malware sites twenty to one. So you know we talk about malware and we talk about you know viruses and things getting onto your network a lot, but I think what we don't talk about is kind of. Um, you know, the end user side and how they get there and, and how targeted the end users are becoming, especially uh, over the past couple of years. And I think that with the new environment, the at-home um, users, that that's only going to increase. And so I think, you know, when we talk about security, we also have a lot of our 
you know, phishing trainings and end user trainings more geared towards kind of protecting those endpoints. And then uh, as you, you talked about kind of layering on different types of security to, to kind of help address that. Um, is there anything that you would recommend that uh, either from a product standpoint or process standpoint that, that you've seen be very successful in, in kind of helping prevent, uh, you know, end user uh, behavior? I mean, if there's one sort of product family that you're looking at, I mean, we're um, something like Cisco Umbrella, for example, is, you know, where you have that endpoint DNS and, and roaming computer security that in and of that's kind of one of those. If you if you need to start somewhere, that's a really, really good place to start because that particular product has such a huge suite of features and the ability to have kind of constant control plane connection to the endpoint. They're protected on and off the network. We can potentially decrypt traffic if we want to. We can filter DNS for them, whether they're on our VPN or not. Uh, we can uh, implement, you know, strict filtering policies. There's obviously a, a million integrations with the other suite of products. Um, that, that's usually one of the best places to go because you can't, it's, um, you're going to get such a huge amount of visibility from a product like that, and you cannot protect against what you can't see, right? So visibility is like the first thing you really need to establish as deep visibility as you can possibly get. And in a scenario, like you said, you know, when the work from home movement kicked in, I mean, it was only a matter of weeks before phishing attacks went, you know, through the roof. Um, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it definitely went, um, you know, it skyrocketed because that's hacking quote unquote is seldom, sitting a guy with a hoodie in the back of a coffee shop with green text on the screen. It's usually social engineering, somebody calling, pretending to be from somewhere, asking for your credit card information, that kind of stuff. And phishing is a, is a huge part of, um, of that kind of method of, of, you know, a, um, a bad actor performing an attack. So protecting against you know, known bad domains and known bad IP space and, you know, heuristics that just don't look right, that kind of stuff, gaining the visibility and then being able to enact policy against those things to turn that into an actionable intelligence item um, really is kind of the best place to, to start. And that would, you know, that would be where I look. And that's where I've seen a lot of our customers in particular have a lot of success around adopting that sort of, uh, you know, product um, early in this process. Yeah, and I would add that we're having great luck with, um, I, you know, AI and, and those kinds of um, tools as well. And I think there's a um, great, you know, difference between having AI and machine learning because, you know, machine learning is great, but you add the AI. So what's the human behavior versus machine behavior? And being able to identify that um, is very important, especially when you couple something like with a Cisco umbrella that, you know, I love that product because I think it just takes all of the garbage away, you know, from your network before it even comes in and allows you to really look at just a micro segment of, of traffic to, you know, trust but verify, you know, circling back on that. Yeah, Rick, and I think the third leg of this, and I'll plug your playbook for ransomware because you're too humble to do it. But I, I know, uh, you, you know, you've been working hard with a lot of people at our company on a ransomware playbook. I think that the third leg of this is really uh, having a plan and, and understanding, you know, everybody's roles and responsibilities during an attack, but prior to, after, and having uh, that mentality that you're prepared for, for anything much as 
you know, you did a tornado drill when you were a kid and knew which hallway to go to and, and where to go. That might be me being from the Midwest, but we did that all the time. Um, but I think it, it goes goes to speak towards good security hygiene as well and, and just understanding, you know, what to do in those situations really can help limit any damage if it were to come. Well, thanks, Rob. You know, just to talk about the playbook for a second. One of the things that was very important to me is whenever we have um, a security incident or we talk, help a customer untangle that or ransomware, I always, if they had a plan, we it, it would really help them, uh, one, keep their stress level down and two, really um, give them the map of where we're going so they can kind of see it. Because that's one of the things that we spend um, time on is, is building that map for them real quick so we can really help them mitigate the issue that's that's occurring in their environment. Yeah, having a plan and proactivity is definitely, you know, paramount. Right. I mean, I think the typical typical disaster recovery planning usually goes something like step one, have a disaster. Step two, recover from the disaster. Step three, recover, develop a disaster recovery plan. Mm -hmm. And if you just had step three done as step zero, you know, you'd be in a better a better state. So having, you know, having uh, having things kind of mapped out and having some avenues to go down ahead of time definitely puts you in a, in a much better position. Yeah, so I want to shift gears uh, a little bit and then kind of wrap up with talking about IoT security um, in this world. Um, one of the things that you know we talked about on the uh, last episode, and it's prevalent a lot, um, would be like the Verkata attack, where you know IP security camera company um, they used the term hack, but it was social engineering that got them in and. You know, they were able to look around and, and grab some data. But it begs the question of so many IoT devices now are on networks and we're segmenting them as best we can. But I will indicate that a lot of these IoT vendors are um, very poor in their approach to security and very poor in the application perspective of it. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and how you, you know, how it's coming into our play in the enterprise networking space. Yeah, it's definitely a huge topic, right? Um, because a lot of this, this kind of this, there's multiple avenues to go down here. But if you look at things like the, um, there's industrial IoT, there's consumer IoT, there's kind of general on the fence IoT. It's really easy to have, or I mean, I have smart bulbs and plugs and switches and Alexas and things like that in my house. And it's really easy to put those things in and not think about what are they doing <laughs> and who's able to access them and, and this and that and the other thing. And the same thing is true from the enterprise perspective, right? And it's important to, um, to take all that into account that you don't, the current way the network, the internet in general and networking in general was built is it was built with an assumption that it was going to be used for general compute and that these computing endpoints, you know, personal computers, tablets, phones, have some means of protecting themselves from bad actors in bad situations. Um, IoT devices don't, were never really designed to do that though, right? These things, whatever they are, are really just, they're sort of purpose-built things. It's a light bulb. You tell it to turn the light on, it turns the light on. You tell it to turn it off, it turns it off. And that's all it really does. It doesn't really have any kind of personal compute capabilities. It can't run a firewall on itself. It's not running its own IPS or endpoint protection, any of that kind of stuff. So you have all those risks to sort of deal with. And um, 
we see that again in the enterprise space and leveraging products like identity services engine is a really good way to start to get a handle on those things by leveraging, um, you know, kind of advanced profiling, but even, even there, it can be tricky sometimes depending on the, you know, the intelligence quote unquote of the device, right? We, you can only do so much depending on what you can see, um, about the device. Now, Cisco has um, contributed heavily to the RFC for MUD, the manufacturer uh, usage descriptor, which is a really good evolution and a huge step, in my opinion, in the right direction for how do we handle these devices? How do we profile these devices better because going off of the mac oui with the mac oui is you know honeywell or something that's great that doesn't tell me a whole heck of a lot what is this device supposed to do is it a honeywell thermostat or is it a you know a humidifier or whatever what is it supposed to be talking to what is it, is it what is this intent right um mud is a way to address that by having the device when it joins the network presents a url where a JSON output of what that device is supposed to do, a bunch of descriptors for the traffic patterns, ports it needs open, things like that, how, what it needs to function uh, can be retrieved by a control solution, and then policy can be enacted based on that, right? So that, that I see is like the next big step, and that, and that was initially introduced in, I mean, ICE, for example, in 2.6, I think, um, the phase one kind of rollout of that. So that, that's, a, that's a huge step in gaining more accurate insight, and I'm, I'm hoping to see you know, we see more manufacturers kind of take that on, adopt that. It, it, MUD itself is an open standard at this point. I believe it's ratified um, in the RFC document. So I'm hoping we see more device manufacturers begin to adopt that strategy so that they don't have to change much about what they're doing in order to make their devices much more talkative about what they're supposed to do so that policy can be enacted against them um, to, you know, stop them from misbehaving, but more importantly, protect them in the first place. Yeah, I think Cisco's doing a fantastic job of identifying SCADA networks and understanding, um, you know, those those things. If you want to play, you know, in that world, you gotta um, be compliant. And then, especially, you know, with the push for uh, CMMC, right? So the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. If you want to do any business um, with the government, you have to have those CMMC levels. And I'm even starting to see it in the regular enterprise. So these IoT companies, um, you know, are really going to have to step up. You know, I'll circle back to my home second. I, you know, being a security practitioner, all of my IoT devices are on their own separate VLAN, you know, an IoT segment. And one of the things that aggravated me was, you know, these things phoning home all the time. And because I had it on an isolated VLAN, you know, they would fail a lot. And then I had to do port forwarding and just get a little crafty in my firewall. But the regular user isn't going to be able to do that. And you plug in a device, you know, like a ring camera and now poofy, (laughs) everybody can see what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's, you know, it it really, the first, when I get one of these devices, whatever, you know, a plug or something, Typically, the first thing that I'll do is plug it in and I have a pretty restrictive wireless network where I basically it's like a whitelist model that I sort of use. The first thing I'll do is plug it in and just packet capture it for a couple hours and then look at that. And I want, you know, I'm ideally looking for the device to sort of like only speak when spoken to. Right. I don't want this device randomly phoning home to public IPs with encrypted payloads and stuff like that, because that's, uh, you know, that's nerve wracking for me. I don't like that. But to your point. Um, a lot of internal, a lot of kind of typical users rather are really 
probably not going to do that. It just goes on your home Wi-Fi. You enter the password and it's on the internet and can do whatever it wants. And you have, um, you know, this additional aspect of things like uh, Amazon Sidewalk, for example, which is sort of this protected mesh network that's going to be started to beacon from certain ring devices. Maybe I want some control over whether or not my device is doing that, but it's one of those like on by default things that if you don't look into it, it's just doing it and you don't, you know, you don't really know and you have no control over what's going on there. So it is, um, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time and I'm hoping that the, uh, you know, things pan out in the, in the direction of control, uh, versus, uh, obscurity when it comes to the security and the operation of these devices. Yeah, and I think one of the, the most amazing use cases from a uh, security realm that I've seen with one of these devices was I uh, had read that there were a number of incidents where people were using laser pointers towards devices that were sitting in like a windowsill or uh, you know behind a glass door or something like that and we're actually using laser pointers to send uh, some sort of infrared signal to these devices and uh, instructing them to open the garage door um, so you know I think that's that's one of the things that I have become cognizant of is what my devices have access to at my house what they uh, can and can't do where they're located and, you know, are they just a walking advertisement for somebody outside to see? Uh, All of those types of things are the things that, you know, I look at from a personal perspective. And I think, Matt, you probably take it to another realm. I'm I'm sure you uh, crack them open and see what's inside much more than I do. So, um, you know, I'm always paranoid, but I I definitely uh, do my homework before I bring something into my my house and I, I would recommend everybody does the same as well. Rob, what do you say that Matt runs Wireshark constantly in his house? I, I bet Matt has like three network access control platforms in there that he just uh, layers on top of each other. I mean, I did just buy some passive taps for use in the lab for that. So you're not, <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. My tinfoil hat's not huge, but it's there, you know? Uh, and I think, you know, it's important when you're talking about this stuff, though, because all these same things apply on the enterprise side. Absolutely. But the thing is, on the enterprise side, it's not just me installing two new light switches that have Wi-Fi connectivity, right? It's, it's I don't, 30 floors worth of smart lighting or like HVAC systems or like huge, it can be massive systems where you need automation and orchestration in order to secure those things. You, it's not just me going in and applying a new Meraki group policy to my new you know, Alexa device or something like that. It's, you know, maybe 500 devices that are coming on and off the network and need dynamic ACLs applied to them and that sort of thing, SGTs, whatever. So having, again, you know, hoping that the evolution of MUD really does go in the direction that it seems like it's going in, um, because that's, that is going to be um, very significant when it comes to actually properly enforcing NAC against um, these type of endpoints. Yeah, one of the things I have seen, you know, back to IoT, we we seeding it largely in the pharmaceutical space. Um, it started coming a few years ago, and now um, it's pretty relevant. I think almost a quarter of your network design now includes IoT and lab components and and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's sort of the way. Um to some degree, it's the way like hospitals, right, have been operating for years. All of the uh, heart monitors and defibrillators and all, any of these network connected components are really, I mean, they're essentially IoT. They're, it's a little different, but it's 
same idea. They're these devices that need to be profiled and postured um, correctly in order for things to be secure. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think it's also likely a good spot to start to wrap this up. I think we're running against our time limit here. And I know, Matt, you are not only Aqueduct's security architect and security expert, uh, you also have a bit of an opinion on what we'll be doing next, which is taco time with Rick and Rob. So I think, you know, uh, just, just a reminder to our listeners, this is where we, you know, answer some of the questions from our listeners and uh, try to talk about some of the topics of the day while supporting local business uh, through the pandemic and ordering some tacos from some local places. But uh, before we get to that, I would say, Matt, you in particular are the the guru that leads us to a number of restaurants, uh, most of which don't have like tables or, or chairs. It's just, you know, kind of a, a hole in the wall, which I think sometimes is the best, best place. But uh, we've been out pretty much anywhere from in the city, down in the Cape together, eating tacos. Um, what's your favorite taco? Oh, man. I mean, I try to love them all equally. Um, I think lately I've been really digging on carnitas, though. Just a real good, simple carnitas taco. I found a good recipe for um, doing the carnitas in a pressure cooker, and that's what I've been doing at home. And that's been that's that's been my thing lately. But I think it's usually between that and um, either carne asada or like a cabeza, which is like the cheek meat. That's, that's usually the, the routes that I go down. But in terms of, you know, overall, I mean, simple street taco is where I'm usually at, right? The kind of stuff you get them off a food truck and the tortillas, you know, four inches across and it's the protein and some onions and cilantro, maybe a couple of pieces of radish or something. And that's, you know, that's the taco and you get four of them. And that's, that's usually where I'm at. Amen to that street all the way. <laughs> Rob knows my stance on that. Yeah. The only, the only part I didn't agree with there is the four, I mean, just four tacos. Well, for the first serving, I can only, you know, can only carry so many. <laughs> awesome. Well, Matt, this was great. Thank you for joining us today and, and talking about all things security, sassy. Um, your insight is is always amazing. And I know we ran long, but I know we could all geek out pretty heavily, especially in these topics. So, um, you know, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. That was a great time. Thanks so much for having me. And I think that brings us to our favorite time, taco time. And uh, I've got a taco here from uh, Island Creek Oyster Bar in Burlington, which is a relatively new spot for my wife and I. Uh, I've been eating some of their braised beef tacos, but as the oyster bar name would, would suggest, they've got some great haddock. They've got shrimp tacos. I think I'll be probably using them again in a later episode just so I can kind of get through their their menu. But so far, so good. Rick, uh, what do you got? I went street again. You know me and my street food. Um, I went to Stuffed uh, in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Um, great, small place. And um, I explored the menu. And one of the ones that I try uh, that I have right now is the pork belly one. Um, it's got some kimchi, uh, mandarin orange, uh, jalapeno aioli. Um, man, I can't wait to dive into that. Sounds good. You know, can't go wrong with a street taco. 
So, Rick, our first question, if you're ready for it, comes from Tom F. And I know he's out in the Illinois area. He asks, the staffing industry is taking a massive hit due to COVID-19. When the job market returns and companies begin hiring again, what IT roles do you believe will be the most sought after given the transition to work from home, among other things? Oh, good question. So, Rick, I know we have probably three answers to this. I know you're you're going to take us down the security realm, uh, and I would agree a, a thousand percent with you. What do you what do you think is going to drive security hiring again? So, from the work from home or even back at the office, uh, I think there's a big need for security analyst. I think everything from entry level to folks that do um, threat hunting uh, from there. I mean, we had a slow roll to it, but now the demand, um, you know, is there. And as we talked with Matt from the sassy perspective, right from that cloud edge, you know, folks are going to need to be, um, looking at that and understanding your, your business impacts uh, from that. You know, that's not to say that, you know, network engineering is still prevalent. And I, I think that's going to be around for, for a long time, you know, at, you know, entry level, mid level, um, network engineers. I do see, you know, with the cloud edge that, you know, cloud security folks, you know, understanding the DevNet components are important. You know, what are your thoughts on on that? Yeah, I think I think, you know, that's that's certainly the second use case I see, which is kind of that cloud application. So, uh, you know, DevOps, cloud engineers in those realms, certainly as companies come back and they're looking to re-architect or restructure the way their applications are. And we just talked about it with, with Sassy. you know, certainly somebody has to take a look at what makes sense from a business perspective for where those applications live. And as that grows, I think, you know, there, there's certainly a place for uh, cloud security or cloud architects to, uh, to find a role. Yeah, we'll say in the DevOps world, it's it's great watching them because uh, a lot of times they used to be monolithic, right? You know, I I can you know code in Java, or I can code in C, or I can code in you know those kinds of things, and now they're very multifaceted. And a lot of the new DevOps um, folks can can DevOps across multiple clouds. They can do you know things with Ansible and templates and Puppet and Chef. And it's amazing to watch them, you know, just spin through their their toolbox so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, I've also got a, a third answer to this question. Uh, and I haven't seen it a lot recently. So the, this is, this is, I guess, my opinion. Uh, but I'm expecting as we come back to the office that we're going to see a large influx in need for uh, collaboration engineers. And uh, the reason being uh, for those companies who haven't, you know, brought in a connected whiteboard or a voice activated platform before, certainly when we come back to an office that might be, you know, mixed between vaccinated and not vaccinated, or, uh, you know, as everybody kind of gets used to interacting socially with uh, other humans again, uh, I, I can see a rise in proliferation for for voice activated technologies. And I think, you know, collab engineers and, are going to see a, 
decent boost once we uh, start figuring out what that looks like going forward. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, even before the pandemic started, right, when we outfitted our rooms, a lot of them were voice activated. And, you know, we looked at it as a novelty. And now it's a necessity, right? So no more touching the boards, you just come in and, you know, it's going to know, you know, who you are, what, you know, what the meeting's for, and then, you know, you can just talk to it to start turning on peripherals and, and get the meeting engaged. And I think the, the, you bring up a good point where the folks that some are going to be at home have to have the same look and feel as if they were sitting there at the desk. Absolutely. So uh, hopefully we've, we've answered uh, Tom's question as best as we can. I think those are the three areas uh, we see. And I know we're running short on time, Rick. So uh, I think this is where we'll stop unless you've got a, a, a quick hitter for us. I don't. I'm just staring at my tacos and hoping to wrap this up so I can eat them. (laughs) Yeah, me as well. Me as well. So I think that's where we'll wrap it. Thanks again for joining me, Rick. And and thanks again to our incredible, legendary guest, Matt Albrecht, the man with a beard as great as his technical knowledge. So make sure to follow us. You'll see this episode on all of your favorite platforms as well as on our website. Subscribe and of course submit a question to marketing at aqueducttech.com and uh, we'll read it again in a future episode. So thanks again. We'll see you next time. Thanks everyone.